Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of Sea Gold by John Blaine. Volume 6, Chapter 11, The Car with the Broken Bumper. Rick sidestepped the blow aimed at him by the fisherman, and the club whizzed harmlessly by. He lifted his own stick, but the fisherman suddenly hesitated and backed up. Then amazingly, he threw down his weapon and stalked off. For an instant, Rick was puzzled. Then he realized that Mike Kozak's words hadn't fallen on barren ground. They had taken much of the anger out of the Crayville men. He turned and saw Scotty engaged in a duel with a burly fisherman. His friend was parrying half-hearted swings of a long club. Down near the Quonset hut, however, a vicious fight was raging. Doug was in the thick of it, warding off blows from three fishermen. Mike Kozak sprinted to the engineer's rescue and started for the fight himself running past Scotty and his assailant. Then a terrible wave of sound engulfed him, and he froze in his tracks. Boom! The fishermen and workmen halted in mid-swing and stood by like a horrified tableau for a fraction of a second. Then they were all running toward the sound of the explosion. Rick saw smoke billowing from one of the sediment tanks and rushed toward the spot. Grenades! Scotty yelled. The concussion jarred Rick. It almost knocked him down. He staggered, then recovered his balance and streaked toward the sediment tanks. Scotty came up almost abreast of him, his legs driving like pistons. Smoke blanketed the tanks now, and a workman staggered out of the veil and fell headlong. Rick turned to help him, and from the corner of his eye he saw two running figures crossing the field next to the plant. Then noting that Scotty was almost at the fallen workman's side, Rick turned again toward the field and the two sprinting men, and he recognized them instantly. Fred Lewis. There was no mistaking that black suit and gray hat, and the other was Tony Larzo. Rick sprang after them. They reached the road while Rick was still far behind. He saw Lewis run down the highway toward the town and saw Tony dash across into the brush on the other side. They were the grenade throwers. He was sure of it. For an instant, Rick hesitated, unsure which of them to follow. Then he kept going after Fred Lewis. Tony was only a hireling. Perhaps Lewis was the boss. He had to stay with him. If somebody had actually seen the grenades thrown, they had Lewis cold. Rick reached the road and saw the black-suited figure a hundred yards ahead, still running all out. The boy increased his stride, arms and legs pumping as he tried to catch up. Lewis swerved into a patch of woods, and Rick ran off the road, intent on cutting him off. A car engine roared. Through the trees, he saw a black sedan spurt forward, reach the road, and turn toward town. He let out a yell of frustrated anger. Lewis was getting away. The black sedan's tires screamed on the pavement as it turned the corner onto the road, and then it was gone leaving him standing helplessly, staring after it. He caught a glimpse of a yellow license plate and knew that it was a New York car, but the sedan had gone too fast to give him time to get the license number. He had also noticed that the bumper was hanging on one side as though it had caught on something and pulled free. He certainly couldn't follow the car on foot, and then inspiration struck him. The cub, of course. He turned and ran back, angling toward the waterfront. He reached the plant running hard and looked around for Scotty. Workmen and fishermen were gathered at the sediment tanks. He let out a yell, but nobody looked up. They were too occupied with the bomb tanks. He didn't have time to turn aside. He kept going, running down the beach toward the plain. In a moment, the ropes that tied the cub to driftwood logs were free and the warning device disconnected. He advanced the throttle and turned on the switch then ran around to the front and swung the propeller through. The well-kept engine caught at once. He jumped in and jazzed the throttle, an anxious eye on his engine temperature. For a moment, he waited, giving the engine a chance to warm. Then he taxied to the end of the strip, kicked the tail around, and pushed the throttle far forward, holding the plane on the brakes. The tail came up under the propeller blast, and he released the brakes, silently praying. The engine coughed once, and his heart almost stopped but the little plane responded, leaping into the air in a full-stall takeoff. In a moment, he was climbing parallel with the beach. 
thought he saw Scotty run out of the group around the sediment tanks and wave, but he wasn't sure. Then he settled down to the business of finding the black sedan. He swept low over the town, watching the roads. There was no sign of the quarry there. He banked around and followed the road that led out of town toward Milford. In a moment, he picked up the black sedan, racing along the highway. And then, from the other direction, he saw two state police cruisers heading at top speed for the plant. A little late, Rick thought bitterly. But it wasn't their fault. Not ten minutes had elapsed since Doug had phoned, although it seemed like half a day. He glanced at his watch. It was 12.11. He banked in lazy circles, always keeping behind the fleeing sedan, and tried to reconstruct what had happened. The fight must have been staged as a cover-up, just to make an opportunity for Tony and Lewis to bomb the plant. That had to be the answer. He shook his head over Tony's defection, but it provided a lot of answers. All the accidents at the plant had undoubtedly been his doing. He could even have adulterated the cement for the pressure dome. It was likely he had, and no one had suspected him. It certainly seemed certain now that Tony had been one of the men who locked them in the fractionator. The Milford turnoff was just ahead. Rick watched the sedan speeding along the black ribbon of road toward the fork ahead and waited for it to make the turn. But the intersection passed and the sedan kept going. He knew then that Lewis was making for the Merritt Parkway. The cub whirled in lazy circles, always behind the sedan so Lewis couldn't see it. Rick hoped he would stop somewhere, giving a chance to put the cub down and phone for help. Once Lewis got on the Merritt Parkway, the chance would be gone. He could lose the cub by turning off at any of the towns en route and vanishing from sight in the maze of city traffic. The black sedan seemed to crawl along toward the parkway entrance, but Rick knew it was going very fast. He watched closely as the car edged onto the concrete parkway and picked up speed again, heading south. If Lewis turned off at Bridgeport, there would be no chance of following him. He had to get a car or lose his quarry. Rick made an instant decision and swung south, turning seaward to pick up Steve's airport. There was another entrance to the parkway toward the airport. He could borrow a car and wait at the entrance until Lewis passed. He gave the little plane all the throttle it would take and left Lewis far behind. In a few moments, he was losing altitude to come in for a landing. The ground came up and the wheels touched in a tail-high landing. He kept flying speed as he made a wide turn for the hangar, not letting the tail drop until he was almost at the door. Then he killed the engine and braked to a stop right in front of the gas pumps. He was out of the plane before it stopped rolling. Steve Hollis came out of the hangar wiping his hands on a bit of waste. Rick, what the heck kind of landing was that? That ain't the way I taught you. Listen, Steve, I have to have a car. Lend me yours, will you? It's important. I can't explain now. Only I'm chasing somebody. Steve's calm eyes gauged the measure of Rick's excitement, and then he nodded. Take the coupe. The keys are in it. And for the sake of my needy family, bring it back in one piece, will you? I'll be careful, Rick called over his shoulder. Will you take care of the cub? Roger that. He noted as he started the coupe that the tank was full. That was good. He wouldn't be delayed by having to stop for gas. He shifted and shot the car across the apron and turned onto the highway. A half mile up the road, he took the turn that led to the Merritt Parkway. The black sedan was somewhere between the Crayville entrance to the parkway and the one he would take. There were no exits in that stretch where Lewis could turn off. Rick planned his strategy. With any kind of luck, he could stay with the black sedan until Lewis reached a destination. He couldn't guess what would happen then, but he could hope for a break. He drove the coupe onto the twisting ramp that led to the parkway, then pulled over to the side, well back from the actual entrance. Now, to wait until the black sedan passed. Rick was sure Lewis wouldn't suspect he was being trailed. He probably had watched the road behind him from Crayville to the parkway. He had seen nothing. He wouldn't be suspicious. Cars whipped by as Rick waited. He kept close watch of the southbound traffic until he saw the black sedan with a broken bumper. He caught a glimpse of Lewis's white face. Then he moved into the stream of traffic and settled down to the chase. As they approached the Bridgeport turnoff, he closed the distance until his was the second car behind Lewis. But the man with the white face shot right on by.
Rick guessed now he was heading for New York. The Merritt Parkway ended after about an hour's drive, and the Hutchinson River Parkway began, with no perceptible change, except for the sign that said they had now reached New York State. Rick settled down to a long drive. Lewis was keeping within the speed limit. The minutes and miles passed, and New York City drew closer. Lewis went by the Long Island turnoff without even slowing. Definitely now, he was bound for some point in New York. The chase sped through Westchester County and into the Bronx, then onto the Henry Hudson Parkway that leads into the West Side Express Highway. Lewis led the way right down the length of Midtown Manhattan. Rick kept a shorter distance now because there were no ramps leading down to the city every few blocks. But not until they approached 24th Street did the quarry show any signs of leaving the elevated highway. Rick pulled up until only one car separated them. The black sedan shot down the next exit ramp. Rick was close behind. They stopped for the traffic light, and Rick let a delivery truck get between them. They must be nearing the end of the trail. Lewis stayed under the elevated highway until he reached 14th Street. Then he went across the avenue heading east. Rick stayed close and saw his quarry turn down 8th Avenue, go a couple of blocks down the avenue, and then suddenly swing into a garage. Rick shot right by and turned onto the next street and stopped in a convenient parking space. He got out and ran around the corner, fearful he had lost Lewis. If there were several entrances to the garage, he was sunk. He crossed the avenue, keeping an eye on the main entrance, and took up his station at the corner. For perhaps five minutes, he watched with growing anxiety. Then he saw Lewis come out and walk briskly uptown. There weren't too many people on the streets right then, so Rick remained on the opposite side of the avenue. At 14th, Lewis crossed over toward him, and he ducked into a doorway. Lewis, still walking briskly, headed east. There were more people now. Rick closed the distance, afraid of losing Lewis in the crowd. At the next corner, Lewis went into a cigar store. Rick peered in cautiously and saw him in a phone booth. He would have given much to hear that conversation, but he didn't dare try to get any closer. Presently, Lewis came out, only to go into a subway kiosk. Rick hurried after him, fishing for a nickel. He didn't have one. He shoved a half dollar at the man in the booth and got ten nickels back. He dropped one in the turnstile and hurried after the white-faced man. Lewis led the way through the underground passage to the uptown side. Then he waited on the express platform. Rick watched from behind the shelter of a steel pillar. It was easy to follow now. When Lewis got on the subway car, Rick got in the other end. When Lewis got off at Times Square, Rick followed, keeping a few people between him and Lewis. Lewis strolled uptown, taking his time. Rick sauntered along fifty yards behind him. He wished he could dare to duck into a phone booth and call the plant, but he would lose the trail. He wished, too, he had stopped to pick up Scotty. There would have been plenty of time as things turned out, but he hadn't dared then. The trail led down 49th Street toward 6th Avenue, and Rick saw the high bulk of Radio City just ahead. Were they heading there? He began to think so as they neared 6th, but suddenly Lewis turned aside and vanished. Rick broke into a run, then pulled up short as he saw why Lewis had seemed to disappear. He had gone into a basement restaurant, down a flight of stairs, and through a door that was still gently swinging. He drew back and peered through the windows. He saw the black-suited figure go down the left aisle. He saw a man rise to greet him. They shook hands, and Lewis joined the man in the booth. "'I've got to get closer,' Rick muttered to himself. He had to get a look at the man Lewis had met. He had to hear this conversation. He examined the restaurant closely. It was rectangular. Booths lined the walls on both sides. There was a double row of booths in the center, separated by a partition on which potted plants were set. Lewis and his friend were sitting in a booth halfway down on the left side of the partition. The booth across the partition was empty. Rick took his nerves in both hands and walked down the four stairs to the restaurant door. Chapter 12. The Manila Envelope. Rick had seen that Lewis was sitting with his back to the door. He took out his handkerchief and held it to his nose in an attempt to hide his face, in case the two men in the booth looked up. Then he went down the aisle to the right, crouching low, 
he slid into the booth across the partition from them. Not until he was seated, his head concealed by the row of potted plants, did he breathe freely again. Then he slid closer to the partition and took stock of his surroundings. The partition that separated him from the two men came up to about eye level. On top of it were plants, an effective screen. Rick saw that the wall on both sides were set with tall mirrors. By looking up, across the potted plants, into the mirror on the opposite side, he could get a good view of the two men. Of course, it worked both ways. If they looked over his head at the mirror on his side, they would see him. But they were busy, intent on their conversation. Rick strained to hear what they were saying. Hello, kid. What would you like? Rick almost jumped out of his skin before he realized it was only the waitress. He gave her a shaky smile. Milk and a ham sandwich, please. The mirror showed him that Lewis's companion was a man slightly past middle age, well-dressed and with a look that Rick thought of as well-fed. Not fat, exactly, but inclined to pudginess. His face was clean-shaven and pink, as though he had just come from the barber. Everything about him indicated wealth and self-confidence. His voice was rather high, but with a commanding timbre. And then what? he asked. Well, Tony met me in the field, and I gave him the grenades. He knew just where to throw them. He made two direct hits. They won't be using those tanks again. Good. We'll give them a few days, then I'll issue instructions to take over. You've done well, my friend. Now how about your men? Tony is all right. We can trust him, and I've paid him well. But I'm not so sure about Stoles. He's a weakling. If they put pressure on him, he may talk. What do you intend to do about it? I'll take care of him, never fear. The waitress placed the sandwich and milk before Rick. He handed her a dollar bill, not wanting to bother fishing for change. You seem to be very good at that sort of thing, the stranger chuckled. Thanks. Now, how about that, you know? Rick accepted the change and thrust it into his pocket. He gulped the milk, not taking his eyes from the mirror across the top of the plants. The stranger chuckled again. I keep my word. I promised you your passport to freedom if you came through for me. You'll have it. And that job is yours as soon as I complete arrangements. Rick saw the stranger take a briefcase from the seat next to him. He opened it and produced a large manila envelope. Then he took out what seemed to be photographic prints and negatives and leafed through them, chuckling softly to himself. It was a good day when I got hold of these, he said. They've kept you faithful to me, my friend. Just give them to me. Lewis's voice was low and intense. Of course. The stranger stuffed them back into the envelope and pushed them across the table. You see, I've included the negatives. Evidence of my good faith, my friend. Rick had strained to see the contents of the envelope, but it was impossible. He thought, if only I could get my hands on it. It had to be important. It had to be evidence of the whole plot. Otherwise, how could the stranger have held it over Lewis's head to force him to obey? For an instant, he thought of snatching it, but they would be on him in a second. He pushed close to the partition, and the change in his pocket tinkled. Then inspiration struck him. If he could divert their attention, he had to get that envelope. He just had to. His glance went swiftly around, searching for an idea. And then he found it under the table. The partition stopped about six inches from the floor. By bending low, he could see the feet of the men in the next booth. Lewis was moving his feet as though getting ready to leave. It had to be now or never. Rick took a handful of change from his pocket. He bent low and flung the coins under the partition. They rolled and clanged on the hard floor with a noise that made everybody look up. In the mirror, he saw the two men lean out toward the aisle. He jumped up, reached across the partition, and scooped up the envelope. Then, with fear and excitement that gave his heels wings, he sprinted for the door. He gained the street and hesitated, not sure which way to run. Then he turned west and ran back the way he had come. As he ran, he tucked the envelope into his belt and buttoned his jacket over it. It was too big to fit into a pocket. Then he threw a glance over his shoulder and saw Lewis emerge from the restaurant and stand irresolute. Rick slowed to a sedate walk, knowing that a run would attract the man's attention. After a moment, he looked back and inhaled sharply. He'd been seen. He broke into a run again, 
dodging people on the street. Some stared curiously at him, but most paid little attention. Then as he neared 7th Avenue, the crowd grew thicker, slowing him down. He looked back frantically and saw Lewis pounding behind him. Rick tried the street, but cars forced him back to the crowded sidewalk again. He pushed through the crowd as fast as he could and reached the corner of the avenue. The light was against him, but he jumped into the street anyway. A taxi whizzed by, almost brushing him. He leapt nimbly in front of a bus and had to stop short for another taxi. For a few terrible moments, he was stranded between the traffic lanes. Then a car slowed and he gained the opposite curb. When he looked back, Lewis was caught in the middle of the street as he had been. Rick sprinted toward Broadway, dodging in and out of the crowd. He just had to lose Lewis. He gained the corner of Broadway and looked back to see Lewis reach the curb at 7th and start up the short block. Rick crossed 49th Street to the north corner. Keep going west, he thought. He might be able to lose Lewis in the alleys west of Broadway. He started across the light and a brawny arm shoved him back. Cross only with the light, my boy. Rick glared at the policeman and turned up Broadway. The crowds slowing him down. In front of a theater, he got hopelessly tangled with people who wouldn't let him pass. He pushed through somehow, cold sweat starting out on his face. He glanced over his shoulder and saw Lewis again. He saw the dark eyes and the white face and read murder in them. The light was still against him, but he dodged in and out of traffic and reached the far side of Broadway. He was worried now. His superior speed meant nothing on the crowded streets, and if he pushed ahead too fast, there was always the possibility that a policeman might grab him. His racing thoughts searched for a way out, and his eyes came to rest on a subway kiosk. If only a train came in at the right moment. He turned the corner of 50th Street and was held up for a moment when he tried to go down the exit. Then he saw his mistake and ran to the entrance. Running now was all right. People would think he was running for a train. He went down the long stairs as though he had wings, fishing for a nickel. And then he remembered that he had thrown all his coins away. He found a bill and thrust it through the wicket, breathing hard, half turned to watch the stairs. The agent took his time, but at last Rick scooped up the change and ran to the turnstile. He put a coin in and pushed through onto the platform. Then he looked around for a passage to the other side of the tracks. He ran to the far end of the platform, looking up the tracks anxiously for the sign of a train. The tracks were gleaming, empty ribbons of steel. There was none. This was a local station with only one platform. He had trapped himself. He was at the southern end of the platform. He put his back against the tiled wall and waited, hoping. If a train came before Lewis did, he'd be all right. Perhaps Lewis had lost him. He might not have seen... And then Lewis pushed through the turnstile. Rick could only wait. He couldn't even seem to turn away. The unhurrying air of the man with the white face had an inevitability to it, as though he knew the end was near. Lewis surveyed the platform. He looked north, taking his time. He looked at the people close to him. He looked south. His piercing dark eyes met Rick's anguished ones. The white face seemed to blur before Rick's eyes. He saw it move toward him, slowly, inevitably. He saw Lewis rub his hands in satisfaction. There was only 50 feet between them. 40. 30. With a strangled yell, Rick threw off the hypnosis that had gripped him. He jumped from the platform and fell, narrowly missing the third lethal rail. He scrambled to his feet and ran downtown along the tracks. And as he ran, he sensed the thrumming of the rails. And he heard... A sudden sound filling the tunnel. A train was coming. Chapter 13. Scotty Takes a Hand Scotty was sparring with his fisherman opponent when the explosion came. Instantly, their private war forgotten, they raced side by side toward the noise. That was a grenade! Scotty yelled. There was no mistaking the sound. He had heard it often enough during the war, and he had thrown plenty of them himself. The fisherman, racing at his side, gasped. We had nothing to do with this, honest! Scotty saw Rick running, too. Then the second explosion came, and he lost sight of him. The grenades had landed in the two big sediment tanks. 
leaving them torn, twisted, and shrouded in smoke. He had a moment's thought that this would be the finish of the sea mine plant, then that was forgotten as a workman staggered out of the smoke and fell. Scotty raced to his side and turned him over. A wet red stain was spreading over the man's shoulder. He ripped the shirt away and called to the fisherman who had been his opponent. There's a first aid kit in the Quonset hut. Go get it. Lively now, and have somebody call a doctor. He bent to the work of staunching the wound and examined the man for further damage. The shrapnel hole in his shoulder seemed to be all, but it was enough. Scotty's expert fingers probed until he was satisfied that no bones had been broken. The fisherman arrived with the kit, and the others began to crowd around. Doug pushed through and asked, How bad is it? He'll be all right, Scotty said. He selected tincture of methylate and swabbed the wound area. Then he applied a compress and bandaged it into place. The doctor would have to probe for the shrapnel. Go to the Quonset hut and bring one of the cots out here, he directed. We'll use it as a stretcher. We had nothing to do with this, one of the fishermen proclaimed. We want you guys to know that. We found the beds poisoned and we were sore, but we wouldn't do anything like this. The other fishermen nodded their agreement. I'm sure of it, Doug said. You were misinformed, Tom told them. Cooner Stoles lied to you. There'll be no poisonous waste from this plant. There was a yell from down near the waterfront, but at that moment the wounded man groaned with returning consciousness, and Scotty didn't look up. You'll be all right, he assured him. It's just a little hole in your shoulder. Two workmen arrived with a cot, and Scotty directed three others to kneel, showing them how to lift the wounded man. In a moment, he was comfortably settled on the cot and beginning to take an interest in his surroundings. What happened? he asked. Tom started to tell him. Just then, Scotty heard the cub engine catch. Rick, what was he doing in the cub? He moved to the outer circle of men listening. Something was up, that was sure. Then the plane shot into sight and he gasped. Rick was in a hurry to make a takeoff like that? He ran into the open and waved, but the plane shot overhead in the direction of Crayville. That was Rick, he said wordly as Doug joined him. What do you suppose he's up to? I don't know, Doug replied, but don't worry about him. He knows what he's doing. I hope, Scotty said. Tom came up. Who threw those bombs, he asked. None of them knew. They asked the question again of the workman. One thought he had seen two men in the field next to the plant, but in the confusion and noise he couldn't be sure. "'Twasn't any of us,' a fisherman said. "'No,' Doug replied grimly. "'I'm pretty sure of that. But you men have been used as dupes. This fight was staged just to give the bomb-throwers a chance. I'm pretty damn certain of it.' The words made good sense to Scotty. "'I think Cooner can give us some information,' he said quickly. He started this fight, remember? He ran toward the road where he had seen Cooner fall after Mike Kozak hit him. The punchy fisherman had vanished. He's gone, Scotty said disappointed. He must have come to and beat it. He looked at the mixed group of workers and fishermen who had followed him, and he missed a familiar face. Hey, where's Mike Kozak? Nobody knew. Scotty scratched his head. First Rick and now Mike. Had they gone together? They may have seen you through the grenades, Tom speculated. Maybe they went after them. The whine of sirens sounded down the road toward Crayville, and in a moment two cruisers loaded with state police screamed to a stop before the plant. The officers piled out, and a sergeant demanded, Who phoned there was a riot starting here? I did, Doug stepped forward. It's over. You're a little late. We came as fast as we could, the sergeant said curtly. The doctor arrived from Crayville and was directed to the wounded man. Not until he was attended and taken away in the doctor's car did they settle down to talk to the police sergeant. Tom told the story from beginning to end while the sergeant took notes. Then the officer asked questions, piecing out the story. Tuck advanced his theory that the fight had been a cover-up for the men who had thrown the bombs. Do you have any proof? The officer asked. Or are you just speculating? It's only a theory, but it fits with the facts. Doug admitted. I think it's enough to start on. Where can I find this Cooner Stoles? It hangs out at Zookie's restaurant on the waterfront, Scotty supplied quickly. Tom leafed through the phone book. 
His address is 15 Whaler Street. Okay, now I think we'll want to talk with this foreman of yours. Tom supplied the address Tony had used. What about that poison they put out in the ocean? Scotty asked. We'll notify the Coast Guard. They'll take samples and have them analyzed. Now, if you want to press charges against these fishermen, you have a right to. Forget it, Tom said. They're plenty sorry for what happened. All right, we'll keep you posted if we find anything. The officer rose and went out to the cruisers. The fishermen had gathered in a group by themselves and were watching the troopers nervously. Doug went over to them. It's okay, we're not pressing charges. There was a mass sigh of relief. And you don't need to worry any more about this plant, Doug added bitterly. It's going out of business before it even gets started, apparently. He turned and strode back to the Quonset hut. One more problem, Tom had said, and they would be finished. Scotty knew that the tanks were damaged beyond repair. The special chrome alloy finish, torn and twisted. He followed the partners into the hut, and his shoulders sagged. Too bad for it to end this way. I wish I knew where Rick went, he said. Probably for help, Tom guessed. He'll be back before long, though. This washes us up, Doug said. There's no point in keeping the workmen on. Tom, will you and Scotty take him back to Bridgeport? I'll make an estimate of the damage. Okay. The workmen were waiting outside. Tom addressed them. I'm sorry, fellows, but that bombing just blasted us out of business. If you'll gather around as I call out your names, we'll pay you for the day's work with a little extra bonus for loyalty. Then we'll take you back. Scotty went over to the truck Tony had driven and climbed into the driver's seat. Rick would be back by the time he returned from Bridgeport. Then they might just as well go home to Spindrift. The police won't find out much, he voiced his thoughts out loud. There's no proof against anybody, not even Cooner. Presently, the men climbed aboard, and he headed the truck for Bridgeport, following Tom's truck. It was after four o'clock when the two trucks pulled into the plant yard again. Doug was sitting on the Quonset hut steps. He called a greeting and gestured toward two large packing boxes. Company came while you were gone. Scotty read the labels. They were from the Carstairs Manufacturing Company. Fractionator units, he said. Yeah, and a lot of good they'll do us now, Tom murmured. Did Rick come back yet? Scotty asked. Not yet, and I haven't heard from him, Doug replied. That's weird, Scotty said. He'd been positive that Rick would be waiting at the plant. He sat down and thought it over. The cub wouldn't still be in the air after so many hours. But where had it landed? Spindrift? He rejected the idea that Rick had gone home. Maybe Steve Hollis had seen him. Scotty went into the hut and called the airport. He waited, fidgeting, while Steve came to the phone. This is Don Scott. I was with Rick Brandt the other day. Have you seen him? Seen him? And how? He landed here like a visiting hurricane. I didn't have a chance to talk with him. He said he was following somebody and needed a car, so I lent him mine. What's this all about? Search me, Scotty said. Which way did he go? Last I saw him, he was heading for the parkway. Thanks, Scotty said and rang off. He went back to where the partners were sitting in silent gloom, and he was very thoughtful. Following somebody? It had to be one of the bomb throwers, or both if there had been two. Steve hadn't mentioned Mike Kozak. If somebody had been with Rick, he would have mentioned it. Rick went after the bomb throwers, he told the partners, and then gave them the details of the conversation. Well, I hope he doesn't catch up with them, Tom exclaimed. Yeah, I hope, Scotty echoed. He had to assume that the man or men who had thrown the bombs were the same ones who had sealed them in the fractionator and offered unpleasant possibilities. If they got their hands on Rick... He wouldn't do anything without me, Scotty said with more assurance than he felt. He'll track them where they're going and then he'll phone. Just wait and see. Where do you suppose Mike Kozak went, though? The partners didn't even have a glimmer of an idea. Scotty got up and wandered down to the sediment tanks, too upset to keep still. The tanks were a mess. They might be straightened and the shrapnel holes welded, but that wouldn't do much good as far as the chrome finish was concerned. By five, Scotty was so jittery, he couldn't stay still for more than a minute. 
At 6, he had Doug report Rick's disappearance to the state police. They'll send out a description, Doug reported. They can't do much else for the time being. By 7 o'clock, Scotty was certain the bomb throwers had Rick and had undoubtedly murdered him and were disposing of his body. He racked his brains for a clue. Where had Rick gone? And who knew where he had gone? Cooner Stoles. On the instant he was legging it toward town, he'd find Cooner if he had to take the town apart. Then he'd choke the information out of him. He barged in through the door of Zookie's and found the place deserted. The fishermen evidently had no desire to congregate in their favorite spot after the day's events. The counterman was polishing the counter with what seemed to be the same dirty towel, and it looked like there was the same toothpick in his mouth. Where's Cooner? The counterman glanced up quickly and then dropped his eyes again. Eight seed em. Where's Cooner? The counterman threw down the towel. I told you, I don't know. Why'd you ask the cops? They came looking for him, too. How do I do? Do I keep track of the bum? It didn't ring true. Old Bill Shakespeare had written something about people who protested too much. Scotty leaned across the counter. One tanned fist grabbed the lapels of the dirty jacket and jerked forward. The counterman turned white. Where's Cooner? I told you, I don't know. The words were a whine. Scotty's fist tightened the lapels. The man's face turned red and choked. Where's Cooner? He growled. He cocked a fist back and stared into the counterman's eyes. The eyes shifted and fell. You won't hit me if I tell. Give and quick. I got a phone call maybe five minutes ago. It was headed from the back room. He went out like a shot heading for his boat. That's all I know, mister. Scotty was gone on the echo. He sprinted along the boardwalk and turned down the pier, not stopping until he reached the berth where Cooner's boat had been tied. It was gone. For a moment he knew dark despair, then he heard the engine and he saw the low lines of the dragger. It was standing off the plant heading south. Scotty didn't bother using the road. He went along the waterfront, dodging buildings and piles of lobster pots, leaping over smaller obstacles. At last he gained the open beach and ran all out until he came to the plant. There were no keys to the plant motorboat. The ignition was turned on by connecting two wires. He twisted them together and punched the starter. The engine roared into life and he cast off, heading after Cooner. Not until he was well away from the pier did it occur to him that he should have told the partners. Well, it was too late now. He couldn't take time to go back. He opened the throttle wide and went after the dragger. The spray in his face and the wind across the bow cooled his temper somewhat and he began to think. After all, Cooner wouldn't know where Rick had gone, but he might know where to locate Tony or Lewis. That phone call had probably been from one of them. Why else would he be taking his boat out at this time of night, especially when the police were looking for him? Scotty had a hunch. Rick would call it a subconscious decision based on facts, but to Scotty, it was simply a hunch. The hunch said that Cooner's trip might well have something to do with Rick. He throttled down and swung in toward the shore. No use letting Cooner know he was being followed. By hugging the shore and ducking in and out of coves, using his superior speed to keep cover, he could trail Cooner, and Cooner wouldn't know if he stayed far enough back to cover up his engine noise. Scotty settled down for the chase. Chapter 14 Fred Lewis's secret. The subway train roared into the station Rick had just left and grown to a stop. He looked back and his heart jumped into his throat and stayed there. Lewis had jumped down to the track after him. Rick ran. His only thought was to put as much distance as possible between himself and the nemesis that followed. He ran until he felt the thrumming of the tracks again. Then he stepped into one of the niches that had been cut into the concrete of the tunnel wall. He saw Lewis duck into a similar niche, then he flattened out as the train roared past, so close he could have touched it. As the last car passed, he jumped out onto the tracks again and continued his flight. There must be openings leading to the street somewhere. It was hard running on the ties. Once he glanced back, he saw he was gaining a little. Another train roared down on him, and he leaped between two pillars to the next track. Ahead of him, he saw lights and realized he had run almost to the next station. 
the Times Square platform. Actually, he had run about seven blocks. If a train came now, he could leap onto the platform and board it, and Lewis would have to stand in a niche until the train left. But luck was not with him. He climbed up on the platform and ran toward the crowd, gathered a little distance down. Some of them looked at him curiously. But it is a peculiarity of New Yorkers that the unusual causes little disturbance. They are too intent on their own business. No one attempted to interfere with the wild-eyed boy, nor with the man with the peculiar face who climbed to the platform after him. Rick reached the momentary safety of the crowd and sized up his situation. He was on the platform between the local downtown and express tracks. There were stairways leading here and there, but he didn't know where they led. He started running down the platform, pushing through the subway riders who waited, and then an express pulled up into the station. He kept moving as the express disgorged his crowd of passengers, and others began getting aboard. He had to make up his mind in a hurry. He chose the train, pushing in through a door just as it slid shut. He couldn't be sure Lewis was on the train, but he couldn't take a chance. He made his way through the packed crowds, working down toward the extreme front car. The train gathered speed, slowed, and then jerked to a stop. Penn Station. Rick waited until the last passengers left, then pushed his way through those getting aboard. He kept an eye open for Lewis, and he thought he saw him. Yes, Lewis got off the train too and was starting for him. Across the platform, a local pulled in and its doors slid open. The express was still waiting to give people a chance to change trains. Rick faced Lewis, waiting. Lewis waited too, ready to leap either way. The crowd thinned. The local started to close its doors. Rick jumped for it and caught a door as it started to slide closed. He held it waiting. Then he pulled it back and jumped onto the platform again. The door slid closed with a sighing sound. The red lights winked out and the train began to move. And Lewis wasn't in sight. Rick made a wild jump for the express and an obliging soldier held the door for him. As the express started, the local roared out of the station. He saw Lewis, his face pressed to the car door, and waved jauntily. Success! His quick move had left Lewis on the local. He was safely on the express. Next stop, 14th Street, while the man with the white face had several stops to make. Rick breathed freely for the first time, and an overwhelming weakness made him lean against the car vestibule wall. At the next stop, he left the subway, heading toward the place where he had parked the car. The envelope under his belt crunched as he walked, and he burned with curiosity. He went into a doorway out of the pedestrian traffic and took it from under his jacket. It wasn't sealed. He drew out three 8x10 photos with as many negatives. The doorway whirled and gyrated and then steadied. Rick stared at the first picture, completely stunned. He looked at it again, refusing to believe what he saw until a careful examination showed him it was true. He sank down on the doorstep and muttered, Well, I'll be doggoned. Manfred Wessel? But that's impossible. The dark-faced, thin-lipped man in the picture had once worked for Rick's father and had shown every sign of becoming an important scientist. Then he had gone away and had been next heard of in Germany. Rumors said that he had aided the Nazis in development of the robot bombs, but since proof was lacking, he hadn't been tried as a war criminal. Then, when Hartson Brandt and his associates were constructing the moon rocket, a mysterious man with a hideously scarred face had appeared, and with the aid of a traitor on the Spindrift staff, had tried to sabotage the experiment while working on a rocket of his own in an effort to win the $2 million Stone Ridge grant for the advancement of science. Rick's thoughts flashed back to the day of the rocket launching. The man with the scarred face had made a last desperate attempt to destroy the Spindrift rocket, had been captured, and his identity revealed. He was the same scientist who had worked for Rick's father and had later aided the Nazis. Manfred Wessel. His face had been scarred beyond recognition in a chemical explosion sometime in the past. But Wessel had gone away from his captors, eluding Rick and Scotty, and had leapt from the cliff behind the laboratory down to the surf and rocks below. His body had never been recovered, but they had been sure he was dead. They were wrong. By some miracle, Wessel had lived. The proof was in Rick's hands. The first picture was of Wessel as he looked like when he had worked for Hartson Brandt. 
The second picture showed how he had looked when he tried to destroy the moon rocket, when his burned face had caused the boys to nickname him Scarface. And the third picture was of Fred Lewis. Fred Lewis was Manfred Wessel. These were before and after pictures of a plastic surgery operation, an operation that had been a failure, changing Wessel's face but leaving it colorless, the skin stretched tightly. All at once, everything was clear. Lewis, or Wessel, had been the one who had tried to kill them, and he had two good reasons. First, revenge, because Rick and Scotty had discovered his plot to wreck the moon rocket, thus preventing him from winning $2 million, and then later making him a fugitive from justice. And second, he'd been afraid they would recognize Fred Lewis as Manfred Wessel. The second reason accounted for the telegram. He had sent it, hoping to keep them away from Crayville. That was why it had been addressed to Rick. Wessel had known his nickname. Rick knew it had to be true, but it was hard to believe. Hadn't he and Scotty seen Wessel leap to his death? But he had survived to become Fred Lewis and to continue his life of crime by trying now to wreck the sea mine plant. He looked at the pictures again and examined the envelope. Inside, he found a slip of paper. I owe you $3,500 for plastic surgery operation, M.W. This was the hold the businessman in the restaurant had on Wessel. The police would be after the renegade scientist once they knew he had survived the jump from the cliff. A stiff prison sentence awaited him just for what he had done to wreck the spindrift rocket. Now that Rick realized what he had found, he was nervous. It wouldn't do to carry such dynamite around with him. A mailbox caught his eye. He hurried up the street and found a drugstore that had a stamp vending machine and inserted three dimes. Eighteen cents should be enough. He borrowed a pen from the druggist and then hesitated. Where should he send this? He couldn't put anyone he knew in jeopardy in case Wessel found out. He finally addressed it to himself, Care of General Delivery, Milford. Then he went to the mailbox and dropped it in. Not until the metal door clanged shut did he breathe easily. Now to get Steve's car and head back to Crayville. He crossed near the garage where Lewis had gone, only after a long survey showed him that the man with the white face was not in sight. Steve's car was right where he had left it. He walked up to it, searching in his pocket for a key, and a voice hailed him. Got a match, bud? He whirled and all the color drained from his face. Standing in the doorway, grinning, was Tony Larzo. And Wessel. He started to run, but Tony moved faster. He took Rick's arm and twisted it until he gasped in pain. Let's go. Into the car, punk. He opened the door and pushed Rick in. Where are the keys? Rick's lips clamped shut. He was sick with realizing how easily he had walked into the trap. But he was puzzled, too. How had they known? Search him, Wessel rasped. He slid in behind the wheel. Tony's hands patted his pockets, found the right one, and came up with the key. One squawk out of you and you're all done, Tony warned. The coupe swung away from the curb, circled the block, and then turned in at the garage. It was empty except for the black sedan. Out, Tony commanded. Rick got out. There was nothing else he could do. They marched him into a back room and pushed him into a kitchen chair. Wessel patted his clothes rapidly, then straightened up with a snarl. Where's my envelope? Rick stared at him dully. An open hand caught him on the side of the face, sending a wave of pain through him. Talk! Another slap. I can't think, he managed. Honest, I was so surprised that... Wessel permitted himself a grim smile. We thought you would be. You were so smug when you waved at me. I began to think you must have trailed me by car, although I don't know just how. No one followed me from the plant, and if that were true, you must have parked nearby. I left the subway and took a cab directly here. Tony had arrived, and we simply searched until we found a car just around the corner with Connecticut license plates. And now, where's that envelope? There was no mercy in the white face. Rick knew he could expect none. Wessel hated him, but as long as the whereabouts of the envelope remained a mystery, he was safe 
to some extent. They might torture him, but they wouldn't dare kill him. At least that was his hope. He closed his mouth tight and grit his teeth. Another slap rocked him and almost knocked him from the chair. As though through a mist, he saw the white face of Wessel and the dark complexion of Tony Larzo. Slap, slap. One side, then the other. The air was pink now, and his eyes couldn't focus. We can't stay here, Tony's voice said from far away. Somebody is apt to walk in. You're right, Vessel said. All right, Tony, give it to him. Rick sensed the coming blow and tried to duck. The room exploded and faded into darkness. His limp body sagged from the chair to the floor.